joy to look out upon you and see so many gathered here this morning. Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the second chapter of Hebrews. And while you're going there, let me just uh, tell you how, how thrilled I was uh, at the way Jared concluded our Joseph series. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Wonderful sermon on God's sovereignty, even in bad things. And I love the way Philip preached from the first psalm last Sunday. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted. What a wonderful sermon from a godly young man. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read... We're going to read uh, beginning at verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Please read with me. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, (coughs) excuse me, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are, all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Focus on verse 14. Therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angel's that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered 
when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Today we begin our Advent series. I don't want to assume that everyone knows what Advent means. <clears throat> the word Advent means a coming or an arrival or an appearance. Advent is the time of year when we celebrate the coming of God himself into our world as a man, as one of us. Our theme for this Advent is Christmas gifts. Christmas gifts. Now normally when we think of Christmas gifts, what comes to mind are the gifts that we give to each other, like Apple iPods or a RoboVac or gravity blankets. But you might have guessed already that that's not what this series is about. This series is about the inexpressibly glorious gifts that God has given to us in the Incarnation. The gift we want to consider today is the gift of victory. God has given us the victory in the Incarnation. Now the word Incarnation is another word that needs to be defined. It means to be made flesh. The Incarnation is when, some 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity became flesh. Now I've just used the word Trinity. That's another word that needs to be defined. The word Trinity affirms, it, it can't explain, but it affirms the mystery that there is one God in threeness. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now it took the most godly and brilliant minds of the church 500 years of study and intense controversy to sort out critical questions of what we call Christology. In other words, who is Jesus Christ? And there is no more important question than that. In A.D. 325, church leaders from Europe and Africa and Asia convened in the city of Nicaea, which is centrally located near Istanbul, to settle controversies regarding a pastor named Arius. Arius taught that Jesus was less than fully God. He and the churches which agreed with his teaching asserted that Jesus was the first and noblest creature that God created. By the way, that's exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Well, the majority there found that idea to be unscriptural. So the Nicene Council formulated the doctrine of the Trinity, which affirmed that Jesus is fully God and that the Holy Spirit is fully God. But the controversies weren't over. The divinity of Christ had been clearly established. But 125 years later, in A.D. 451, church leaders from everywhere met again in a city called Chalcedon, which is actually in modern-day Istanbul, to debate another controversy, and that is teachings which affirmed Jesus' full divinity but denied that He was fully human. And finding that idea also to be unscriptural, they formalized or formalized the doctrine of the Incarnation, which affirmed in no uncertain terms that Jesus was and is fully human. Now, J.I. Packer notes that these two doctrines belong together. And I quote, Trinity and Incarnation belong together. 
the doctrine of the Trinity declares that the man, Jesus, is truly divine. That of the Incarnation declares that Jesus is truly human. Together they proclaim the full reality of the Savior whom the New Testament sets forth. That's the critical question. What does Scripture teach? And how do we explain it? Well, these same truths, the divinity of Jesus Christ and the humanity of Jesus Christ, are seen very clearly in chapters 1 and 2 of the book that we've read from this morning, the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, Hebrews establishes the full divinity of the Son of God. In these last days, He, that is God, has spoken to us by His Son. All right, who is His Son? Who He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This Jesus upholds the universe by His word. Later in chapter 1 it says, But of the Son, of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's Hebrews 1.8, quoting Psalm 45. Now we get to chapter 2, which we've read from this morning. And chapter 2 establishes the full humanity of God's Son. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, who? Namely, Jesus. So this man, this Son of Man, this is Jesus. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, that is the Son, likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. He partook of flesh and blood. He became a man like us and subject to death. Therefore, he had to be made, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So that as God, he could faithfully represent God to us. And as man, he could faithfully represent us to God. He is our great high priest. So Jesus had to be in every respect like us. He's a man. <laughs> He's a man. He's a fellow human. He's born of woman. He is our brother. And this is a great comfort to us. He's one of us, and He understands us. So at Christmas time, we celebrate the coming of the one whom angels worship as God Himself and the one who became a man and dwelt among us. Christ, by highest heaven, adored. The angels worship Him. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold Him come offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity, 
pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Our text this morning teaches us gloriously that in His incarnation, God gives us the incalculable gift of victory. And that's the theme of our sermon this morning, victory. Now, the idea of victory assumes a contest, does it not? It assumes a battle where one either wins or loses. The idea of victory assumes that there are opponents who are defeated. And our point this morning is that Jesus gives us victory over our opponents. And this text points out three of them, victory over the devil, victory over death, and victory over temptation. Those are our great enemies, and let's take them one by one. First, victory over the devil. Again, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil. It was necessary for Christ to partake of flesh and blood that he might destroy our great opponent, our great opponent, the devil. Who, who is the devil anyway? Well, the name Satan means adversary. Satan is humanity's great opponent. He is the great enemy of mankind. The devil makes his first appearance in the Garden of Eden and his aim from the beginning has been to destroy us. He hates human beings because we've been made in the likeness and the image of God. He knew that if Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they would die. He wanted them to die, and he worked to accomplish their death, which is why the Bible says that he has been a murderer from the beginning. Spurgeon preaching on our text, and I've got a long quote, hard to improve on Spurgeon. Let's read him. Satan brought sin into the world when he tempted our mother Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. And with sin he brought also death into the world with all its train of woes. Nothing ever delighted the heart of the devil so much as when he found that the threatening would be fulfilled in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And never was his malicious heart so full of hellish joy as when he saw Abel stretched upon the earth, slain by the club of his brother. Aha, said Satan, this is the first of all intelligent creatures that has died. Oh, how I rejoice. This is the crowning hour of my dominion. It is true that I have marred the glory of this earth by my guileful temptation. It is true that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain by reason of the evil that I have brought into it. But this, this is my masterpiece. I have killed man. I have brought death into him. And here lieth the first, the first dead man. And since that time, Spurgeon says, Satan hath ever gloated over the death of the human race. He's our great opponent. 
Satan continues his work, causing people to destroy themselves and others. He continues to tempt and deceive in order to turn people away from God. He blinds people to the gospel. He holds them in bondage to lies that keep them from God. He especially hates it when anyone does come to God, when anyone does come to believe and trust in God's Word. And he hates it still more when anyone engages in spreading that Word to others. He uses temptation, doubt, fear, confusion, envy, pride, and slander, and every other possible means to oppose the work of God. But God, but God promised our first parents that the seed of the woman would one day crush Satan's head. Well, when an angel visited Mary and Joseph, and when a multitude of angels sang at the birth of Jesus to certain poor shepherds, Satan knew that this child born to Mary could be, probably was, that seed. So when he saw the babe laying in that manger, he sought to kill him, then and there. So he stirred up Herod to have all the infant boys killed. He's been a murderer from the beginning. Jesus began his ministry and was teaching in the synagogue. So the devil stirred up those who didn't like what he said to take him to the brow of a hill and throw him off the cliff. But it wasn't his time. He's been a murderer from the beginning. Through the course of his ministry, the devil stirred up the jealousy of the Pharisees to such a height that they breathed out murder against Jesus and sought for an opportunity to kill him. The devil's been a murderer from the beginning, but God has given us the victory over that murdering devil through the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the devil's still acting. He's still fighting. He's still opposing us bitterly, but his lethal tyranny over us is broken. John Calvin, preaching on our text this morning, said this, Jesus has so delivered us from the tyranny of the devil that we are rendered safe. For though the devil still lives and constantly attempts our ruin, yet all his power to hurt us is destroyed or restrained. It is a great consolation to know that we have to do with an enemy who cannot prevail against us. Jesus has given us victory over the devil. Second, victory over death. Victory over death. Death was defeated in the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Owen wrote a famous book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. When Christ died, death died. Death was defeated in His birth, death, and resurrection. So when our text says that the devil has the, the power over death, it's something that we have to think about for a little bit. Let's make sure we understand. Because we know that the devil doesn't have absolute power over death. God exercises complete sovereign control over all things, including life and death. But Satan does have the power of death to the extent that he has power to incite people to sin, which leads to eternal death. Satan does have the power of death to the extent that he has power to lie and deceive people into death traps. Satan does have the power of death to the extent that he blinds the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel. Satan does have the power of death as long as he has grounds to accuse those apart from Christ who remain 
in their sins. But brothers and sisters, this morning, we are in Christ, and we're no longer in our sins. So He has no grounds upon which to accuse us. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin, not upon my shoulders, my sin upon His shoulders. Like the first of the two goats in Leviticus 16, Jesus died as an offering, as a propitiation, our text says, satisfying the demands of holy justice against all our uncleanness, against all our transgression, against all our sins. And like the second goat, the scapegoat, all our uncleanness and all our transgressions and all of our sins were transferred into Him and then borne away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Hallelujah. Christian, your sins are no longer yours. They were laid there on His eternal shoulders. And when He cast them from His own shoulders into the depths of the sea, as far from you as the east is from the west, Satan lost all grounds of accusation, and the power of death over you was broken. God so loved the world. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 In recent weeks, I've lost a number of friends. We've lost a number of friends. And several others of my friends have asked for prayer because they're now facing life-threatening illnesses. Death is a great enemy. And it's a great comfort to me, especially as I age. And friends begin going home. It's a great comfort to me to remember that though we die, yet shall we live. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a comfort for all of us to remember that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Third, in the incarnation, God gives us the gift of victory over temptation, another great and formidable opponent. The last verse or closing, yes, the last verse of our text this morning, Hebrews 2.18, because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you being tempted? He's able to help those who are being tempted. Here we learn that Jesus, who Himself suffered when tempted, helps us when we're being tempted. We're tempted daily by the world, by the flesh, by our own flesh, and by the devil. And if we're not watchful, 
if we're off our guard. It's never long before we find ourselves deeply entangled in temptation. Like a bird caught in the fowler's net, we are ensnared and we frantically struggle to escape. In those moments, we're like Peter in the courtyard, powerfully tempted to cowardice and betrayal. In those moments, we're like David on the rooftop, seized by lust and teetering on the brink of sexual sin. In those moments, we're like Moses at the rock, boiling in anger, about to explode in volcanic rage. But let us give heed, brothers and sisters, to this text. Let us never forget that Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted, and He's ready to help us when we're tempted to give us the victory. Look, why should a little kid get pounded by the neighborhood bully when he has a big brother who will come running if, if the kid will just call out his name? I was the older brother in my family. I remember if, if one of my sisters or one of my little brothers was having trouble in the neighborhood and I heard them cry out or one of my other siblings came and said, so-and-so's getting beat up, I came running. Jesus will do the same for us if we will but call on His name. Cry out to Him, brothers and sisters, to deliver you from evil. Ask Him to help you. When you're in that moment, teetering on the brink of sin, cry out to Him, Lord Jesus, help me, deliver me from evil. And He'll come running. Look, when you feel yourself crumpling under the weight of temptation, hear me on this, Jesus is not condemning you. He isn't fed up with you. He isn't turning His back on you. He took on flesh and blood. He's a man like us. He knows the power of temptation. He knows the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. He knows that you are but dust. But let me just plead with you, if you find yourself in one of those moments, look to Him and entrust yourself to Him in that temptation, and He will rush in with compassion to rescue you. He'll unentangle you from the fowler's snare and give you victory over that sin. And let me just add in closing that as our faithful high priest, Jesus prays for us. I was thinking about this. So that even when we do fail when tempted, perhaps badly like Moses did, perhaps badly like David did or like Peter did, Jesus has already prayed for us like He did for Peter. Peter, I have prayed for you. Satan has desired to sift you like I have prayed for you so that when you return, you'll strengthen your brothers. Jesus has already prayed for us that we would turn back, and after we've turned back, that we would strengthen our brothers and sisters. When you've succumbed to temptation in some degree or some measure, Jesus is not reluctant to receive you back. He's prayed already that you would return. He welcomes you back. 
He might want to speak with you intimately like he did Peter when he asked him, Peter, do you love me? But his purpose is not to condemn you. No, he bore all the condemnation on the cross. His purpose is to restore you to victory and to restore you to usefulness in his kingdom and to keep you safe until the day he returns. Until that day, brothers and sisters, we can say with Paul, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say that aloud together. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a great battle. We have great and powerful enemies, but in the incarnation, we've been given the gift of victory. This Christmas time, let's rejoice in that. Amen.